If you'll turn with me to Psalm 87 in your copy of God's Word, Psalm 87. Hear God's Word for you this morning. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say, and of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one were born in her, for the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. This one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, All my springs are in you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks for this word this morning. And I ask that you would strengthen me uh, physically, mentally, spiritually, that you would fill me with your spirit this morning to proclaim your word with truth and with clarity. Lord, open our eyes, all of us, to see the wonderful things from your word. Unite our hearts to fear your name. Draw us closer to you, Lord. We are weak, and we need your strength in all things. Lord, we pray that you would do this for your glory and for our good and joy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, we're beginning a series through uh, the summer, through various psalms. And as we do this, I think it's probably good to be reminded of the nature of the book of Psalms itself. The, the, the book is not a random collection of 150 different works. That's what I thought for years and years. But it's actually quite purposeful. And many of the key themes in this book are actually set forth in the first two Psalms. They really serve as an introduction to the book as a whole. Psalm 1 is, a, is one that pictures... Uh, it presents a picture of two ways, the way of blessing and the way of perishing, these, these contrasting ways. And it contrasts the, the blessed man with the wicked. The blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Rather, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And ultimately, the blessed man, it, as we look at that, uh, we might be a little intimidated because we know that that's not us, but it is Christ. It points to our Savior. He's the only one who's ever completely fulfilled that. And Psalm 2 continues the theme and that idea of blessed. Its final words are, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And this forms what we would call an inclusio or a bookend in, in some sense with Psalm 1 because Psalm 1 began with, blessed is the man. Psalm 2 ends with, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And the blessed one is the person, therefore, that takes refuge in the Lord, that meditates on his law, that trusts him, that knows him and does not turn to himself or to the way of the wicked. And so this idea of blessedness is a major theme of the book. Mark Futado was one of my former professors and really taught me to love the Psalms well. He summarized the overarching theme of this book. You'll hear very similar to what the end of Psalm 2 is, but blessed are all who take refuge in the King who reigns. 
Blessed are all who take refuge in the king who reigns. And that all, blessed are all, really does mean all. All people from every nation and tribe and tongue and peoples. You know, God worked through Israel, but the blessing was never to be just for Israel alone. Now, as we turn to Psalm 87 then, Psalm 87 is what we would call a song of Zion. There are actually numerous songs of Zion in the, the book, Psalm 46, 48, 76, 84. We just sang a bit from Psalm 84 a few moments ago, and Psalm 122. And in these Psalms, Zion, or Jerusalem, is revered as the place where God dwells, where His presence rests. And so, it follows that Zion would be that desire, the longing of God's people, because they actually want to be with God. They want to be in His blessed presence. Consider Psalm 48, verses 1 to 3. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great King. Within her citadels, God has made Himself known as a fortress. And again, going back to Psalm 84, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Yet I think one of the things that we need to see as we see this longing is that this longing is for the presence of God and being in the presence of God. Not, and it's not only for native Israelites, but it's truly for the nations. It's truly for the nations. Look at Psalm 86. So right before our Psalm, Psalm 86, starting in verse 8, reads, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. And then listen to this. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. So we see in verse 9, this all the nations, uh, it's, it's picked up in Psalm 87, and we'll get to that. And this truth that it puts forth is that God is not some regional deity. He is not like Baal or Molech or any of the others, but He is Lord of all peoples, and that salvation is only found in Him, and it is for all who believe. And that is throughout the Psalms, it's throughout the Old Testament, and certainly shown very clearly, revealed very clearly in the New Testament. So as we come to Psalm 87 this morning, there are two ideas that I want us to explore. The first is that Zion is the city of God. And the second is that Zion is the place of spiritual birth. So Zion is the city of God, and Zion is the place of spiritual birth. And my prayer is that this morning we will see the beauty of Zion and and of God's work, but also that we will see this psalm in light of our current experience, our place now in redemptive history, that we'll see this psalm in the light of the church. So look at verse 1. On the holy mount stands the city He founded. Okay, quite simply, it's the city He founded. It's God's holy city on God's holy hill. Actually, you could go back to Psalm 2, and you'd see the holy hill of Zion. And listen to how the psalmist describes it in 132, starting in verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. 
Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread, her priests. I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. Zion is his resting place forever, his dwelling place that he will bless. It's founded by God, so, and it, it owes its stability and its security to God's presence, not because of the greatness of the place, but because of God's presence. It's his establishment. We just sang John Newton's hymn. One of the lines was, On the rock of ages founded, what can shake thy sure repose? What can shake your security? Nothing. It's his dwelling place. And then the psalmist continues in verse 2. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Now, that is a beautiful phrase and one that we should sit upon and learn to meditate upon. In particular, the Lord loves. The Lord loves. Now, all the dwelling places of Jacob, that's all the places of Israel, but he loves in particular Zion. It's the place of his presence. And it doesn't say that the Lord loves Zion because it's amazing or the greatest of all, but simply that the Lord loves Zion. And it reminds me of what was said about Israel in Deuteronomy 7, starting in verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Israel was not lovely, but Israel was loved because God set his love on her. Does it sound familiar? Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, the reason I bring those texts up is because I believe Psalm 87 speaks to more than just physical Zion, more than just the city of Jerusalem. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 22, reads this, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Here, Mount Zion is clearly more than that physical place. It refers to heavenly Jerusalem. And there was a longing by the saints. If you read Hebrews 11.10, you hear of Abraham pressing forward, longing for that city, but never reaching it. It's more than just the one place. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. It was for God. It was for God's presence. And now, since the time of Christ, the place God has chosen to make his presence known most clearly is not an earthly city or an earthly physical temple, but among the gathered people of God in the church, the ecclesia, the, the called out ones, the gathered ones. The promises in the covenant made to Abraham are fulfilled in Christ and in his body, 
the church. The church, in a sense, could be substituted for Zion in our very psalm. Now, I will tell you, as I've studied this over the years and, and been confronted, this is different for me to think about the psalm in this way. I grew up in church, but not actually thinking much about it. I went faithfully, but I, I would say I, I was a, a very low church person. I had a very low view of church. Not that I disparaged it in any way, but I honestly didn't give one thought to the significance of the church. I, I didn't think about that it was God's body set up. I was probably a person who was put off by a phrase in the Apostles' Creed that we just said, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. I never had Catholic defined for me that it means universal and not Roman. I've had a lot of growing to do in my life as to how I view the church. And it's still growing. And, and seeing that God clearly loves the place of His presence, His dwelling, there is something special about the gathered people of God, about His church. Folks, there's great blessing that comes from the church to be part of the people of God, part of the, the city, so to speak, that God has founded. The church is not an institution of man, though too often it may seem like that in many instances but it is founded by God. It is the very body of Christ. And that language, body of Christ, one of the things that that does is it speaks to the union that believers have with our Lord. In Ephesians 5, when Paul addresses marriage, the union of husband and wife, he says, actually, this is a picture of Christ in the church. And I think that speaks um, not just to the importance of marriage, but to the importance of church. That the the imagery that has to be used of that is that of that intimate union between a husband and a wife. It speaks to the value of the church. And I think you can certainly say that without Christ, there is no church. And on another level, and in some sense, you can say without the church, there is no Christ. Now, these first two verses tell us that Zion is founded by God. It's loved by God. And I believe they point in our day to the church, but there is much more to this psalm. So look at verse 3. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Now, what are these glorious things? And we've gone through some of them that, and as we've read some of these other songs of Zion. And there, there are numerous things spoken in regard to the glory of Jerusalem as the city of God but I'm not going to dwell on those necessarily because what this introduces, what comes next, the glorious things that this points us towards is what we see in verses 4 through 6. And that is that Zion there, the church, is the spiritual home not just of Israel, but of all peoples, of the nations. So look at verse 4. Among those who know me, I mentioned Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say, and of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord records as He registers the peoples. This one was born there. Now consider that first verse. There are five representative words or nations listed, and it's here we begin to see the link back to Psalm 86.9, where we talked about all nations, but also back to other psalms like Psalm 47 and Psalm 48 and Psalm 67, the desire to, to see the nations blessed. And it begins with Rahab. Now, there is nothing in this text that tells us 
who this refers to. But I will say very clearly, this is not the woman that rescued the spies in Joshua. Rahab is actually the poetic name of Egypt. If you look at Isaiah 30, verse 7, or 51, 9, you see that. And so it's used that way. So it's speaking of Egypt, the first enslaver of the people of God. And the name Rahab itself, the definition of Rahab, carries the connotation of arrogance, of pride, of boisterousness. It's the opposite of what you would associate with God. And then there's Babylon, that great oppressive power to the east, maybe an oppressive power that the psalmist, as they're writing, is under at that very moment. And then there's Philistia to the west, the long time, the constant enemy of God's people. That's the Philistines. That's Goliath and everyone in that line. And then there's Tyre, a powerful city-state to the north. And finally, there's Cush, what we would call Ethiopia. And this was the, the idea of saying Cush was to, to denote the farthest reaches, the, the, the distant parts, the, the distant areas of the known world. And so what you have in these nations are every corner, every point on the compass, as well as the farthest thing you could think of. And he's saying, this is universal. This is universal. And so look back at the start of verse 4. Among those who know me, I mention. Now, when we seek to mention those who know us, we have a tendency to name drop, right? We try and figure out that, that coolest person we've ever met. Like, you know, I, I was in the president's cavalcade one time, or whatever. We try and mention the, the, the nicest people. But the Lord doesn't mention the people of great wealth or of fame and fortune. Those who were renowned for actually being good to Israel, to his people, but he mentions oppressors and enemies, enslavers, the, the far removed. Here you start to see that that promise given in Genesis 12 to Abraham is fulfilled, that all the nations will be blessed in your seed. See, Psalm 87 is rooted in that covenant of the blessing of the nations, and Mark Futado comments on this. And he says, the Apostle Paul develops this theme in the book of Galatians, where he says, all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. This all includes all the nations. For now, there is no longer Jew or Gentile. All who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are children of God and familial heirs of the promises of God. People from all the nations can thus say of the heavenly Jerusalem, she is our mother and the source of my life springs from Jerusalem. So when we read this psalm, we, we cannot keep it separate from the context of the whole of Scripture. And our minds naturally and rightly should want to press forward when we hear that all the nations come to Zion. And maybe we'll look to a text like Acts 2, verse 9, at the day of Pentecost, where we read that Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Or we go to Ephesians 2 and 3 and we see how Paul lays out that in the gospel, the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile is broken down and he's, God, Christ is working to, to form them into one new man in place of the two. The far off come together as one in Christ. And then we can go even further, Revelation 7, 
9 and 10, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see this fulfillment coming. So in Psalm 87, these nations are said to know the Lord. Now, when I lived in Turkey and I'd have conversations with various people, sports was often a a common topic of conversation. And many of them actually, they they really love the NBA in Turkey. And so I would often have one of the guys that I was talking to go, hey, do you know Michael Jordan? And I would take that time to help him a little bit with his English because what he meant is, have you ever heard of Michael Jordan? Do you know who he is? Have you watched him play? Do you see how amazing he is? Because he used the word no, and, and we, we understand this, okay? Typically, no connotes being in a relationship with. Being in a relationship with, and especially in Scripture, no does not just mean having heard of, being familiar with. No means to be in a saving relationship of intimate knowledge. It's used in the language of a husband of wife, of the man and wife knew each other. There's an intimacy there. It's a relationship in relation for, for man and God of taking refuge, of bowing down in faith and repentance. And we hear in John 17, 3, that same word used. And this is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. But the question is, how is it that the nations know the Lord? Look at what is repeated. Verses 4 and 6, you see the same phrase, this one was born there. And in verse 5, there's a slight change to it of this one and that one were born in her. Now, anytime you see repetition in Scripture, you should pay attention, but especially in poetry, and especially in Hebrew poetry, you should pay attention. The people are born, the foreigners are born in Zion. The Lord actually records them in the register, in in the book of life, and you can see that the multiple verses that talk about this book of life, that the Lord writes them down. And so these foreigners to Israel will be counted as actual natives, Now, how are they counted as natives? How is someone from Cush a native to Zion? Folks, this has to speak of the new birth. Do you remember Jesus' interaction in John 3 with Nicodemus? A Pharisee. A man born of Zion, physically born of the city. He's part of the Israelite heritage and in the line And Jesus says what to him? You must be born again. You must be truly born in in the heavenly Jerusalem, in the heavenly Zion. There, There has to be spiritual life from death. So being born in her that we see in Psalm 87 is being born of God, being born again into the body of Christ, truly into the church. Now, there's a very old statement from a guy by the name of Cyprian of Carthage from the third century. 
And this is what he wrote, and this is what it means in English. Outside of the church, there is no salvation. He even goes further and says, you cannot have God your father unless you have the church for your mother. And actually, the Westminster Confession of Faith, part of the constitution of of the the Presbyterian Church in America, says something similar in, in chapter 25, paragraph 3. It says, the visible church consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Let me just add another one. Even though most of us already are likely jarred by those statements, I see faces of, uh, whoa, what are you talking about, Chad? Because it, it sounds off. And even Calvin wrote similarly that the church must be our mother. And he said, furthermore, away from her bosom, one cannot hope for any forgiveness of sins or any salvation. So what are all these statements saying? I mean, these are from very early in church history. The third century is pretty early. Are these statements accurate? Well, I would actually say yes. But let me explain what I mean and what I believe they mean. First, what doesn't this mean? This does not mean that it is merely by association with the church that one is born again, that one is saved. Just by coming and being a part of the church does not mean you're saved. Just as by being an Israelite did not mean that every Israelite was saved because they were a physical descendant. You hear a phrase in Scripture, especially at the end of Galatians, where Paul says, peace be upon you and upon the Israel of God. There's something different about the nation and the faithful remnant of Israel, okay? The reality is, is Christ is our salvation and not the church. We have to repent and believe. We, we must do that. But there is truth to this that we would do well to recognize. And I think one of the things that's hard is we're Americans and we're very individualistic. This corporate idea of I need to be a part of this corporate body is hard for us. And, and we have an individualistic view of salvation and see that in salvation, uh, we need to start to see that in salvation, we're actually united to Christ. And the church is Christ's body. Christ is present in the church. The gospel is vitally connected to the church. We are saved into a people loved by God, loved and cherished to the point that Christ would die for that people to make us into one new man. So, folks, we need to have a reverence and a love for the church like we see in verse 7 that the people had for Zion. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. There's great joy and delight in the church, in the people of God, really in God who founded the church. We don't worship the church by no means. The church is the gathered people of God to worship God, to be in his presence. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, and God has chosen to manifest himself most clearly on earth through the church. It's not that your, your home is not a dwelling place of God where God is ever present, but I think it could be accurate to say that the Lord loves the church more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. He loves the gathered people 
of God. Folks, the church is a treasure. It's the people of God called out of darkness into His glorious light, into fellowship with the Father. In the church, we have union with Christ, and we have union with one another. People from all nations are gathered as natives in the church, where God said, this one is born in her. The blessing is not just for physical descendants, and it's not, it's not actually for physical descendants. It's for those who are spiritually born in her. So what do we make of this? What do, what do we take away? How does this, how does understanding this, how does believing this actually make a difference? Well, first, one of the things that I, that I want us to see is just the heart of God. The heart of God in calling the nations to Himself. That's always been His plan. That's the beginning of the covenant of grace is to, to bless through Abraham's seed, to bless through Christ, and to call the nations to Himself. So coming to Zion, coming to the church, and, and, and finally, it's fulfilled completely when the people from every tribe and tongue and nation are gathered around the throne. So, folks, I want to be and I want us to be a part of that mission of calling people to be part of the church, of seeing people, of rejoicing together where we could say, this one is born in her, who was outside, who was far off. It's the call of evangelism. It's the call that we have to the nations. So let us pray for the beauty of the nations filling the church and filling this very local expression of the church. But another one, that whole idea of the Lord re records in his register. Do you remember what happened in, in Luke 10 when Jesus sent out the, uh, I think the 72, and they, they come back and they're saying, oh, we saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. <coughs> uh. We saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. And what does Jesus say to them? Rejoice not that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. Rejoice for those of you who are in her, that it can be said of you, you have been born in her. You've been born again, born anew. And then the last thing, folks, we ought to love the church. We ought to think highly of the church. It is glorious. Yes, it is very flawed on this earth. But it is His body. I just went through the Intro to Living Hope class uh, not too long ago. And one of our lives is the only person who has a right to give up on the church is Christ. And He's not going to. He loved her, and He gave Himself for her. So we have no right. We, we should long and pray for the upbuilding of the church, for growing together, for its, its influence in our city, in our state, in our nation, and in the world. It's the body of Christ. It's the place of His presence the place where he's chosen to say, this is where I make my presence known. I know I've talked to people who still, for various reasons, 
aren't together with us, and they desperately miss it because that they know there's something different about being here than about watching it online. A number of you have, have been able to be here, and then you've missed, and you're like, oh, I'm so thankful for the live stream, but it's not the same. You know why? Because it's not the same. There's something about being together in the presence of God's people, worshiping the one who called us out of darkness and into light. I'm thankful that we have that, and I'm thankful it's there for those who need it. But I long for this. We're united to Him and each other in a blessed fellowship. So one of my questions for you, just as you think about it, how do you view the church? How do you view the church? Because the church is Christ's holy bride, His bride that He sought, and we're called to love that bride, to love one another, to love the Savior who called us to be those who speak glorious things of the city of God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this time and for this word. And we ask that you would help us in our view of the church, in our love for her, in our delight in her. Because the church is Christ's body that he gave himself for. May glorious things of her be spoken. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.